A new effort is underway in Egypt to try to work out a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. It's Tuesday, February 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, forecasters say a fast-moving winter storm is heading toward Boston, but the city won't get as much snow as expected. About three inches now forecast for Boston. We'll have the latest. Also this hour, the Federal Reserve says it's not quite ready to start cutting interest rates. And a Cape Cod community is exploring what's known as urine diversion, which advocates say could be good for crops and help clean the Cape's polluted waters. In nature, you have plants and animals, and the animals eat the plants, and the waste from the animals go back to the plants, and the nutrients go round and round. Humans don't do that at all. Heavy snow expected today, but should taper off late this afternoon. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Last hour, the Senate just passed a foreign aid bill that would offer help to Ukraine, Israel, and some Pacific nations. A group of Republican senators had filibustered the bill all night, trying to slow it down. But it passed 70 to 29. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It's been a long night, a long weekend, and a long few months. But a new day is here and our efforts have been more than worth it. The Senate took up this foreign aid package after Republicans torpedoed an earlier measure. That bill had coupled foreign aid with money for U.S. border security measures. But under pressure from former President Donald Trump, GOP lawmakers abandoned the bill. Despite today's package of the rather passage of the foreign aid bill, some House Republicans say they will kill it. There's a special election today in some New York City suburbs to replace Republican Congressman George Santos. He was ousted from Congress on corruption allegations, but snow could keep voters from getting to the polls. Much of the region is getting a heavy winter storm. As NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports, residents have been warned of potential power outages and travel delays. The National Weather Service predicts up to two inches of snow per hour in the region from the central Appalachians to southern New England. In Rhode Island, the governor has shut down government offices and banned tractor trailers on the interstate. Officials in Pennsylvania have imposed vehicle restrictions on the turnpike. Conditions are mixed in New Jersey, where some parts of the state are getting rain, but Governor Phil Murphy says others could see a significant accumulation of snow. Folks in central and northern New Jersey could wake up to anywhere between three-ish inches all the way up to potentially 12 inches. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams advises staying off the roads. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. President Biden is trying to use humor to ease concerns about his age. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on Biden's efforts to reframe his long public life as an asset. President Biden, the oldest president in U.S. history, is poking a little fun at himself after a special counsel report raised significant questions about his memory. Speaking to the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference, Biden was touting his work on clean energy when he added, I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. (laughs) I do remember that. It was a bit of humor and possibly a dig against special counsel Robert Herr, who released a Justice Department report about Biden's handling of classified documents. In it, Herr described Biden as being a, quote, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Biden rejected those claims. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
People in Indonesia are heading to the polls to choose a new president today. NPR's Julia Simon reports the election in the world's third largest democracy has potentially big stakes for the world's climate. Indonesia is the world's biggest nickel producer, a key mineral for making steel, and more and more solar panels and electric vehicle batteries. The problem is Indonesia is powering much of its growing nickel processing industry with new coal plants. Candidate Prabowo Subianto owns a coal and energy business and wants to increase the coal-powered nickel industry. It isn't just coal. Prabowo's campaigning to build more farms for food security, a process that has driven deforestation. He's also pushing bioenergy, using plants to make fuels. But growing lots of crops like palm oil for bioenergy can also drive more deforestation. Julia Simon. NPR News. Later today, the House of Representatives will try again to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Last week, Republicans failed by a handful of votes to pass the impeachment articles. A Georgia state judge says there will be a hearing Thursday. It will determine whether Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from prosecuting a state election interference case against former President Donald Trump. One of his co-defendants alleges Willis has a conflict of interest stemming from a personal relationship with the case's special prosecutor. The Georgia judge says the matter remains to be proven. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The storm hitting the northeast will bring heavy snow, strong winds, some coastal flooding to Massachusetts today, although we won't get as much snow as originally forecast. A winter storm advisory is now in effect for much of eastern and central Massachusetts. The heaviest snow is expected between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. today. WBUR's Zeninjor and Lameca has more on how state officials are responding. Officials urge residents to use extreme caution due to quickly accumulating heavy, wet snowfall. Governor Maura Healy says residents should avoid traveling during the storm if possible. MEMA will continue to track the storm closely and will coordinate preparations with our state agencies and private sector partners. Crews are on standby to address flooded roadways, downed power lines, and coastal flooding. The storm is expected to be followed by cold temperatures, which could lead to icy conditions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Schools are closed in districts across the state today because of the storm. More than 200 cancellations are reported at Logan Airport this morning. And for rail riders, most regional Amtrak trains between New York and Boston are canceled today. A new study from UMass Amherst shows how poorly maintained roads disproportionately affect residents in low-income communities across Massachusetts. Nirvani Williams reports. Neighborhoods in western mass communities like Springfield and Holyoke were included, according to Jessica Wachi, one of the authors of the study. Wachi says a significant reason why these issues arise in minority communities is because of redlining, which is the practice of denying people access to credit because of where they live. The black population, we weren't allowed to purchase houses, right? So we didn't have the capital to get a house. So you're stuck in this cycle of renting, you might not be renting a house that has great quality. Wachi says her and other researchers want to explore different strategies for fixing roads and want to find the most equitable outcome for the greatest improvement in these communities. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams.
The time is 8 minutes past 7. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Northeastern University men's hockey team is celebrating its second straight beanpot win. The team defeated Boston University in overtime last night for the championship. The final score was 4-3. to three. Bruins host Tampa Bay at the Garden tonight. The Celtics are heading to Brooklyn to take on the Nets. In our forecast, snow today heavy at times. Strong winds, some minor coastal flooding expected. The winter storm should begin around 10 o'clock this morning. Three to seven inches expected in much of greater Boston. Higher accumulations south of the city. Lighter snow north of Boston. The highest accumulations from this storm will be in southeastern Massachusetts and on Cape Cod. The snow should taper off by early evening. After that, partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the 20s and sunshine tomorrow. Highs near 30 degrees. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com and listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Let's find out how a statement in an American presidential campaign echoes in Europe. Former President Trump told one of his rambling stories over the weekend. He claimed that an unnamed leader of a NATO ally, someone who referred to him as Sir, asked about not spending enough for defense. And Trump recounted himself saying he would tell Russia to do whatever it wants to that country. No reliable source says any of this happened, but the ex-president was expressing his long-standing skepticism of the North Atlantic alliance. A brand new member of NATO is Finland, which shares a border with Russia and joined after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finland's Minister for European Affairs joins us next. He is Anders Adlerkreutz. He's on the line. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. What, Good morning. What did you think when you heard the former president's remarks? Of course, it did raise some concern. Article 5 is, is really the backbone of the alliance. Its credibility must be protected, and I think it's also definitely in the, in the, in the interest of the U.S. I guess we should explain when you say Article 5, that is the part of the North Atlantic Treaty that says an attack on one nation will be viewed as an attack uh, on them all, and it is in fact was, was, it was invoked one time when the United States was attacked on September 11, 2001. You're saying, I think, that Trump's remarks undermine Article 5. They, they, he's saying Article 5 is optional. Is that it? Uh, well, from our point of view, I mean, we here in Finland, uh, we take commitment seriously. Finland clearly makes NATO stronger. We have real capabilities, a very strong reserve. We have arms and we have stockpiles. I think you can say, say that Finland really never lowered its guard, but even so, uh, we chose to become NATO members as a result of, of Russia's war in Ukraine. And uh, I think you also can say that all NATO members can count on Finland being a reliable partner. We take agreement seriously, and Finland naturally expects all other member countries to do the same. And, and I have, I mean, uh, of course, I have no doubt that the U.S. will also do, do that. Uh, 
whoever is is the president. Oh, meaning that you are not actually fearful that if Donald Trump resumes the presidency, that he would uh, treat this as an option rather than a requirement? Uh, well, of course, I mean, the statement raises concern, but I, I fully expect, of course, any any American president to to abide by the agreements that the U.S. has made. Would it be a disaster for Finland if the United States did not abide? Because you've taken the risk of joining NATO. You've made your big neighbor Russia unhappy and you would get nothing for it in return. Uh, well, I think it would be very detrimental to, to general global security. In that case, I think it would, it would, would be detrimental to, to American interests. I think, I mean, Trump has a point uh, if he referred to the national defense budgets when he talked about countries not paying. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many countries here really need to step up. Uh, Finland is clearly above the 2% threshold in defense spending, but many countries are not. And, and that, of course, needs to change. Uh, several European countries need to step. But I think that is, that is a separate discussion. Uh, we have the other discussion of, of the general commitments, and, and here, of course, I think it is in the U.S. interest also that all other member countries understand that, that they have requirements, that, that the U.S. counts on them if Article 5 ever would be evoked. And as you said earlier, uh, it was used after 9-11. At that point, several countries did come to, to, to the aid of the US. And, and Finland, of course, uh, is fully committed mm -hmm. to that too. Uh, whenever the, needed, Finland you. will abide by its commitments. You, you raised, though, uh, the point that Trump's defenders would raise, essentially that he is pressing NATO allies that don't to live up to an agreement to spend at least 2% of their GDP on national defense. And they will point out this is something that Barack Obama did before him, that it sounds like you would like, uh, and he's just doing it in his Trumpy way. Is this a defensible remark in that sense? Uh, well, I, I, of course, I live by the assumption that this is, uh, these remarks are part of a, of a campaign, of a presidential campaign. And, uh, and, and of course, as, as, as Finland has signed to an agreement uh, which contains the requirements of Article 5, we of course naturally presume that uh, every other member of the alliance lives, lives up to that agreement. And I of course fully, fully suppose that the, the US also would do that Anders if, if it would be, would be tested. Anders Adlerkreutz is the Finland Minister for European Affairs. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. A new report out today finds that large numbers of Americans say anti-Semitism is a major problem in the U.S. Here's NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. The report, called The State of Anti-Semitism in America, found that 94% of Jews and 74% of all U.S. adults say anti-Semitism is a very serious or somewhat serious problem. The American Jewish Committee, or AJC, commissioned the study, which was carried out in October and November of last year. The survey also found that American Jews are uncertain about their place in American society. Nearly two-thirds of respondents say that the status of Jews in the U.S. is less secure than than one year ago. 
That's up dramatically over recent years. The number one reason given was because of the Israel-Hamas war and the aftermath and effects of that. Holly Huffnagel is the AJC's director for combating anti-Semitism. She says nearly half of Jewish respondents say they've changed their behavior due to fear. Avoiding publicly wearing, displaying things that might help people identify them as Jewish avoiding certain places, events, situations out of concern for their safety or comfort as a Jew, and then avoiding posting online that would identify them as a Jew or reveal their views on Jewish issues. We've now seen this turn into a five-alarm fire. American Jewish Committee CEO Ted Deutsch. In a country where freedom of religion is of paramount importance, to find ourselves in a situation when nearly half of all people are afraid, that should be unacceptable to everybody. Deutsch says many Jews are feeling abandoned right now, but there is something anyone can do. It means a lot to just reach out and to ask how they can be supportive. That alone is really important. FBI data released late last year show more than half of all religion-based hate crimes were driven by anti-Jewish bias. Last month, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, released data that shows from October to December of last year, bias complaints related to Islamophobia were up 178% over the same period the previous year. CARE calls those numbers staggering. Jason DeRose, NPR News. He returned last night after nearly nine years away with a familiar greeting. Welcome to The Daily Show. My name is John Stewart. Now, where was I? Um... It didn't take long for John Stewart to resume the kind of humor he was known for during his long run hosting The Daily Show. Why am I back? Uh, you may be asking yourselves. It's a very reasonable question. I have committed a lot of crimes. <laughs> From what I understand, talk show hosts are granted immunity, so it doesn't <laughs> And here to talk about Stewart's return is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hi, Eric. Hi. Okay, so what happened? I mean, I know there was this long search for a new host of The Daily Show, and now Jon Stewart is back. Is he back for good? Well, you know, just to remind everybody, Comedy Central had been trying to find a new permanent host for The Daily Show for over a year right. since Trevor Noah, who succeeded Stewart in 2015, left the program. Now, earlier this year, they announced that Jon Stewart would return as a host just on Monday nights, while also serving as one of the show's executive producers for all the nights. And the show's correspondents are going to pick up the slack. They're going to host the show on the remaining nights of the week, starting with Jordan Klepper, who takes over the program tonight through Thursday. So John Stewart back. Did he seem rusty? Is he just is he right back in the driver's seat there? Now I gotta say, I'm a longtime fan. I was impressed by how easily he slipped back into that host chair. I mean, it <laughs> felt like no time had passed at all. And he spent the show's first twenty minutes really digging into the controversy over the advanced ages of both President Joe Biden and his likely re-election opponent, former President Donald Trump. Here's a sample. Let's listen. They are the oldest people ever to run for president, breaking by only four years the record that they set! <laughs> so, you know, critics might accuse Jon Stewart of falsely giving way to both sides of this issue, but Stewart insisted that Biden and his supporters in particular should just do a better job of showing the public that they shouldn't be concerned rather than criticizing voters for having the concern. So how'd the rest of the show go? I mean, he's the executive producer now. Any indication of what, how that will change the show? 
Well, you know, there was a funny segment with all the correspondents pretending to report from a diner, including a joke at Stewart's expense about how voters needed more than the same show from an older yet familiar face. <laughs> John Stewart has said one reason he came back was to platform important ideas and discussions, and he jumped right into a contentious issue. So as a daily show connoisseur, Eric, the big <laughs> question is, is Stewart's return the best thing for the future of the show? Well, you know, it was just his first episode back, but I do think that last night was a fine return to form, and it's going to bring a lot of new attention to the show. Now, the new show probably won't get the million-plus viewers that Jon Stewart had at his height on the show, uh, but he's popular with the show's old-school fans who may still watch traditional TV, so the ratings will probably go up a bit. But times have changed a lot since he last hosted the show. Late nights in decline, younger viewers are on TikTok, and I think eventually The Daily Show has just got to decide if it's going to try to evolve a new voice for a new style of late night TV or if it's going to keep doing some version of what it's always done. That's Eric Deggins, NPR TV critic. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR this morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Labor Department delivers a report card on inflation today. It's 21 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Showcase Cinemas and the Museum of African American History. With a screening of loving and discussion with historian Dr. Kerry Greenwich. ShowcaseCinemas.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. In the special election to replace disgraced New York Republican Congressman George Santos, the Democratic candidate admits his party's brand isn't too good right now. We've been losing everything, local races, state races, the federal race. I'm Juana Summers. We hear from voters ahead of that election on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. It's raining in Boston right now, but it is expected to change over to snow later this morning and continue for much of the day. About three to seven inches total expected in greater Boston. Higher accumulations south of Boston and on Cape Cod. Looks like the snow will taper off by early evening. After that, it'll be partly cloudy. Temperatures in the 20s tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine highs around 30 and sunny on Thursday with temperatures near 40 degrees. It is 33 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. 
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Last year, Massachusetts passed new regulations forcing Cape Cod communities to clean up their wastewater pollution. Now, towns on the Cape are spending billions of dollars to install sewers and upgrade septic systems. But what if there were a cheaper solution? Some say there is. It's called urine diversion, or pee cycling. In the second part of our series on Cape Cod's water pollution, WBUR's Barbara Moran takes us to Falmouth for this story. Hi, I'm Barbara. Nice yes, to meet hi. you. Thank you. This is amazing. Oh, thank you. Earl Barnhart lives in a beautiful house in Falmouth with his wife, Hilda Menge. There's a huge vegetable garden and fruit trees. Oh, there's chickens. Oh, it's like a country club for the chickens. <laughs> but I'm not here to see the chickens. I'm here to see the bathroom, because Barnhart and Menge are known on Cape Cod as the power couple of pea cycling. Yes, they recycle their urine. All those luscious vegetables grown on what Barnhart calls liquid gold. In nature, you have plants and animals, and the animals eat the plants, and the waste from the animals go back to the plants, and the nutrients go round and round. Uh, humans don't do that at all. What most humans in Falmouth do is use septic tanks which means all those nutrients leach into local bays and ponds where they feed algae and invasive plants. The plants grow like crazy, sucking up oxygen in the water, killing fish, and turning the bottom to muck. To solve that problem, Falmouth had a plan. So we learned that Falmouth, our town, was going to spend $600 million over 40 years and build as many sewers as they could in that time. And that's a huge amount of money for a town of 30,000 people. So we started studying alternatives to sewers. Barnhart and Menge learned that most of the problem comes from pee. And that if you could divert the urine only, you could divert 80% of the nitrogen that's causing the trouble. So they did. Menge says they bought urine-diverting toilets for their home. Okay, so you're going to show me um, one of these toilets. Yes. Okay. Okay, so here we are in the bathroom. It looks like a normal toilet. Exactly. So then you sit on it and sort of the chute opens in the back and that's where yeah. the poo goes. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And then there's like a little chute. For the urine in the front. Ah. And since everybody is pretty much the same, you don't have to think about how I'm going to sit to make this work. It never fails. Never fails? I went back to find out. I'm going to shut the door here. Okay, I'm actually going to use this toilet. Spoiler, I am not going to tape this, but I will give a report back after. Stand by for the report. Okay, well, overall that was pretty anticlimactic. Uh, so I just peed, the pee went down where it was supposed to go, and that was that. I'm not the only one intrigued by this whole pee cycling system. My name is Brian Baumgartel. I'm the director of the Massachusetts Alternative Septic System Test Center. Baumgartel is an expert on the Cape's wastewater woes, and his group is doing a whole research project on pee cycling. He says we're thinking about pee all wrong. Well, I would argue that wastewater is a resource. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's got stuff in it that we don't necessarily like because it might make us sick. Um, but um, nitrogen is one of the things that we utilize for fertilizer. Baumgartel says recycling pea could help curb the demand for synthetic fertilizer. And there are other pros to pea cycling. 
It's relatively cheap compared to sewers or advanced septic, about $15,000 to install one of the fancy systems like Barnhart and Mengay have. And if you don't want to sprinkle your tinkle on your flower bed like them, there's a small cost to get your urine hauled away. Or for less than 100 bucks, you can get a portable urinal called a cubie. And people could start pee cycling quickly without having to wait decades for sewers. Now, I think there's a lot of advantages. I don't know that it's the sort of end solution for the wastewater problem. Maybe it is for some folks. And folks are interested. Barnhart and Mengay host regular open houses to teach people about pea cycling. One day last fall, more than a dozen people showed up. Yeah, we're going to show you what, how our house is set up uh, in two groups, and then we'll come back out and talk some more. A group follows Mengay into the bathroom and downstairs to see the storage tanks. One guy on the tour, Rob Pacheco of Falmouth, thought it was interesting, but maybe not for his house right now. I think that uh, it's something that we need to adopt the idea of, you know, in general. Just not sure of how to install everything. <laughs> Toby and Rich Stomberg were more enthusiastic. They have a house in Eastham which has the same water problems as the rest of the Cape. And it's a, such an amazing solution. So for us, it's just taking the time to get it going in our own home. And then if that spreads to our neighbors, well, that would be really nice. Yeah, I'd point out, too, that we have solar panels on our roof, and we got lots of money back from the state mm -hmm. and government that really made it easy for us to do that. And the government is not supporting this. That might change, at least in Falmouth. In November, the town approved funding to explore a urine diversion pilot project for at least 50 homes. If the town votes to move forward on the full project this spring, it'll be the first program of its kind in the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. This project was produced in collaboration with Scientific American. You can see their video about Cape Cod's water problems at WBUR.org. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, preparing for the first in the South GOP presidential primary in South Carolina later this month. It's 7.30. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. In an early morning vote, the U.S. Senate has approved a foreign aid package that includes funding for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. The vote followed an all-night filibuster by some Republicans who opposed the bill. The legislation does not include new provisions for border security. That had been a sticking point. The bill faces hurdles in the House. A new effort is starting today in Cairo to negotiate a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The pause could last up to six weeks and include another exchange of hostages and prisoners. NPR's Greg Myrie says any deal would be sent to Hamas for review. 
Hamas is not expected to be at the table today in Cairo. Hamas does talk to Egypt. It had a delegation there recently, but it doesn't look like it's going to be there today. And it, it points to how complicated these ceasefire negotiations are because Israel and Hamas don't talk to each other. NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. A nor'easter is bringing heavy snow from Maryland to Massachusetts today. New York City and surrounding areas could get a half a foot or more. Mayor Eric Adams says students and teachers are staying home. It's going to be remote learning day. That's one of the things that came out of COVID-19. We could continue the educational process of our children, so they will be learning remotely. Hundreds of flights are already canceled or delayed. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Although the winter storm has been downgraded in terms of snowfall totals expected in greater Boston, we will experience some heavy snow and high winds today, and that could cause power outages. It's raining in Boston now, but snow is expected to start later this morning. Peak precipitation this afternoon. Southeastern Massachusetts and Cape Cod are forecast to get the highest accumulations. National Grid spokesman Michael Dalos says the utility is bringing in more crews. We can prepare for the forecast and we do that by securing additional crews and personnel, um, putting plans in place. We do have to wait and see what the weather brings, but you know, we've been monitoring this for a couple of days, definitely since last week at least, and we're prepared for whatever it might bring. A coastal flood warning is posted until 5 o'clock tonight. A new report finds that UMass Dartmouth failed to disclose sexual assault and harassment allegations against one of its former police officers. The university commissioned the report after a WBUR investigation found that the officer got a new job with another police department. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. David Loudon resigned from UMass in 2010 after he was investigated for allegedly sexually assaulting a female student. He went on to work for Blackstone Police, where he was assigned to work in the schools. Blackstone said it didn't know of the allegations against Loudon and accused UMass of covering them up. The new UMass report does not find evidence of a willful cover-up, but says privacy policies at the time prevented school officials from disclosing the information. Because Loudon resigned before he was terminated, the allegations stayed hidden. A UMass spokesperson says the school now follows new state regulations that should prevent a similar situation in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Today's special election in Milton has been delayed because of the storm. Voters will cast ballots tomorrow on whether to accept a new policy that would allow for denser housing development. The plan is meant to bring Milton into compliance with new state regulations for communities with MBTA service. If voters reject the proposal, Milton would be the only community in Greater Boston that would be out of compliance. Town leaders approved the new plan last month. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive PhD Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. The Bruins host the Tampa Bay Lightning tonight. Celtics are on the road today. They play the Nets in Brooklyn and Northeastern University men's hockey team. The Beanpot champions for the second year in a row. The team clinched the title last night when they defeated Boston University 4-3 to in overtime.
Snow is expected today. Strong winds, coastal flooding. It should start snowing about 10 o'clock. The heaviest precipitation between 10 and 2 to 3 o'clock this afternoon. 3 to 7 inches forecast for greater Boston. Higher accumulations south of the city. Less snow expected north of Boston. The snow should taper off by early evening throughout the state. After that, it'll be partly cloudy with temperatures in the 20s. It is 33 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Inflation has been cooling in recent months, and we'll find out today if this trend continued in the early part of the year. The Labor Department lays out last month's cost of living stats, and that is something the Federal Reserve will closely watch while trying to decide if it's safe to start cutting interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley is also watching on this Fat Tuesday. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so where do economists think inflation is right now? On average, forecasters think today's report is going to show that the annual inflation rate in January was somewhere around 2.9%. If that's correct, that'd be the first time it's been under 3% in almost three years. You have to go all the way back to March of 2021. Now, prices are still going up faster than most of us would like, uh, including the inflation watchdogs at the Fed. As you know, uh, the Fed's target is for inflation to be just 2%, and so we're not quite there yet. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and his colleagues are not yet ready to say inflation is vanquished and then start cutting interest rates. Okay, so I guess you would assume they don't start cutting interest rates until they get down to 2%, but maybe it's a little more flexible than that. What do they look for? Yeah, they don't have to get all the way down to 2%, but uh, Fed Chairman Powell says they want more assurances that inflation is going to keep heading in that direction. This is how he put it a couple weeks ago. What do we want to see? We want to see more good data. It's not that we're looking for better data. It's a, we're looking at continuation of the good data that we've been seeing. Powell noted that so far, a lot of the improvement in inflation has come thanks to the falling cost of goods, stuff like lumber or used cars or those chicken wings we were all gobbling up on Super Bowl Sunday. Hmm. It's not clear, though, that goods prices have a whole lot more room to keep on falling, uh, especially given some of the geopolitical frictions and you know, shipping disruptions. Oh, yeah. So additional progress on inflation may have to come elsewhere. Which would be where? Two of the big pieces of the inflation puzzle are housing costs and services. Now, housing costs are measured mostly by looking at rents around the country, and we know that market rate rents are rising much more slowly than they had been. So although it takes time to show up in the official government data, the housing piece of inflation should settle down. That leaves services, things like car repair and restaurant meals. Those prices are still going up at a pretty rapid rate. And Chief Economist Kathy Pischancic of Nationwide says that's what the Fed is keeping a very close eye on. That's what they're worried about. That's the sticky part. Once you do get the inflation embedded there, it's, it's harder to bring it out. Now, we did get some good news last week when the Labor Department revised some of its inflation numbers from last year. Uh, those updated numbers suggest that service prices rose more slowly in October, November, and December than first reported. So that should offer some reassurance to the central bank. Okay, work us through then the schedule here. When might the Fed be ready to start cutting interest rates? 
Well, the next Fed meeting is five weeks away, and Powell pretty much ruled out any action at that session. It'll just be too soon to gain the kind of confidence he and his colleagues say they want. But financial markets think there's a better than 50-50 chance that the central bank will be ready to cut rates at the following meeting in May, and Vyschancic says that's reasonable. We think they can cut rates in May. They'll have three months of data. I think that's sufficient. But if one of those three are not particularly encouraging, that could push the timing back. It could be June or later. So far, Steve, the U.S. economy has actually held up pretty well in the face of these very high interest rates. But lower rates, whenever they come, will certainly be welcome for anyone looking to get a car loan or expand a business or just carrying a balance on their credit card. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks. You're welcome. Voters in the world's third largest democracy head to the polls tomorrow to elect a new president. Indonesia is also Southeast Asia's largest economy and the world's most populous Muslim-majority nation. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Jakarta on what's at stake. On Sunday, supporters packed the Jakarta Stadium to rally for front-runners Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto and his running mate Gibran Rakabumi who is mayor of Surakarta City and the son of outgoing President Joko Widodo. Polls show Prabowo with a commanding lead over his rivals, who are both provincial governors. If no candidate gets an absolute majority, there will be a runoff vote in June. This is Indonesia's youngest electorate ever. More than half of its 204 million eligible voters were born after 1980. One of them is first-time voter and Islamic school student, Ulfa Nurma Aulida. Mr. Prabowo is cuddly and kind and... <laughs> sorry, I'm a bit nervous. She says she learns about Prabowo the same way many other young voters do. On social media like TikTok, YouTube and TV. Prabowo's team has packaged him as a jovial dancing grandpa whose smiling avatar adorns baby blue t-shirts. Eric Tohir is a Prabowo supporter and Indonesia's Minister of State-Owned Enterprises. Prabowo was expected to continue President Joko Widodo's policies, and Tohir likes that. I believe in stability and continuity. And if Indonesia not stable also in terms of the politics, I don't think good for the region and also for global geopolitics. Under Widodo, or Jokowi as he's known, Indonesia's economy has grown at about 5% a year. His infrastructure building and poverty alleviation policies are popular. Jokowi beat Prabowo in 2014 and 2019 elections. But some supporters who once hailed Jokowi as a Democrat are angry because they believe he installed his 36-year-old son as vice presidential candidate. Political scientist Dewi Fortuna Anwar says Jokowi is tarnishing his own legacy. Two things still save Indonesia's position. First is that, that it has a vibrant civil society. And secondly, that the election has generally been free and fair. But Anwar says that evidence suggests that Jokowi is trying to tip this election. So you have problems of cooptation and bribery. You have the problem of real intimidation to vote for a particular candidate. This reminds everyone, at least people who remember, of the new order government. Many first-time voters were born after the 1966 to 1998 New Order government of General Suharto. Many older voters, though, do remember. Shouts for reformasi, or reform, go up from students and teachers at Jakarta's Trisakti University. They're gathered by a monument to four students who called for political reform in 1998 and were shot to death by soldiers. 
Usman Hamid was a Trisakti student then. He's with Amnesty International now. So this election is an existential moment for the pro-democracy and human rights movement in Indonesia. Indonesia's military sacked Prabowo in 1998 for his role in human rights abuses, including during Indonesia's U.S.-backed invasion of East Timor between 1975 and 1999. Usman Hamid says Prabowo was also implicated in the Trisakti shootings, which eventually led to Suharto's downfall. The fact that Indonesia is going to have someone implicated in human rights abuses as the next president is a reflection of Indonesian failure in prosecuting those responsible for crimes committed in the past. Amid notes that Indonesia is hardly the only country prone to democratic backsliding and authoritarian rulers making a comeback. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Jakarta. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll talk with a presidential scholar about whether age should be considered when deciding on a presidential candidate. Snow in our forecast today, sometimes heavy, strong winds, coastal flooding today, about three to seven inches expected in greater Boston today. Higher accumulations south of the city and on Cape Cod. The snow should taper off by early evening. After that, it'll be partly cloudy with temperatures in the 20s, sunny to Tomorrow, highs near 30 degrees. It's 34 degrees right now in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. In business news, developers are withdrawing a proposal that would have allowed for expansion of a climate tech hub in Somerville. The Summer Nova development, as it's called, is already home to businesses such as Greentown Labs and Aeronaut Brewing. Boston developers Rafi Properties proposed replacing some of the shorter buildings in the development with multi-story structures. A Rafi spokesperson says the company withdrew that plan in response to community feedback and they'll refile it this spring after consulting with Somerville residents and officials. Two programs will split one and a quarter million dollars in state grants to educate and train people in the clean energy sector. The Clean Energy Workforce Development Grants will go to Greater Lawrence Technical High School and the Green Jobs Academy in Marlboro. The money comes from a settlement with Columbia Gas after the 2018 Merrimack Valley gas explosions. Massachusetts is the most educated state in the country, according to a new ranking from WalletHub. The personal finance site says Massachusetts tops all other states in education attainment and quality of education. Vermont took second spot on the list. The time is 7.46. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Both Donald Trump and Nikki Haley are campaigning in South Carolina, which holds its Republican primary later this month. Today, Haley is back on the road, starting in her hometown of Bamberg before hitting coastal towns near Charleston and Hilton Head. Trump has been campaigning there as well and over the weekend made a remark about NATO allies saying if they didn't spend enough on their own defense, he would welcome Russia to do whatever it wants to them. South Carolina Public Radio's Gavin Jackson was listening as Trump said that and he's on the line. Gavin, good morning. Good morning, Steve. It's interesting when Trump talked in that way about leaving a NATO ally to be invaded by Russia. Haley is somebody with a diplomatic background herself. She served as Trump's own U.N. ambassador. So how'd she respond? Yeah, Steve, I sat down with Nikki Haley the day after that on Sunday. And this just became another example for her to point to about how Trump's lack of leadership on the world stage is dangerous. She routinely talks about him cozying up to leaders that she describes as thugs like Russian President Vladimir Putin. And this gave her just more ammunition and energy for this campaign with fresh talking points about what foreign policy would look like under Trump, which she has seen up close during her two years at the UN. Trump, of course, also makes things personal. That's no no surprise. And made it personal somehow with a remark about Haley's husband? Yeah, and she pointed out the other day that she tries not to make politics personal. She sees that as a problem. So during his 90-minute long speech over the weekend here in South Carolina, Trump mentioned how Haley previously told him at Mar-a-Lago that she wasn't going to run against him. And during that meeting, she brought her husband Michael with her. And Trump recalled this meeting, and he mentioned where Michael, he kept saying, you know, where's Michael, and then started questioning his whereabouts. And Haley called this remark insulting, and I asked her if such past and current remarks that Trump has made about veterans disqualifies him from being commander-in-chief. And this is what she had to say. I don't even think you should have a driver's license if you talk bad about a member of the military. I certainly don't think you should be president of the United States. And we should note that Major Michael Haley with the South Carolina Army National Guard is on a year-long deployment in support of U.S. Africa Command in the Horn of Africa. Gavin, having covered Haley's campaign since the start, has she changed her approach to voters at all? Yeah, so Steve, she has been sharpening her attack somewhat against former President Trump. Obviously, she's the last one standing before him between this, the Republican nomination at this point. But she continues to make this message, this focus on electability, that she's the only person that could beat Biden in November. However, based on Trump's victories, it's clear that's not exactly reaching these primary voters, and they're not very interested in it. But she's hoping that comments that Trump made recently over the weekend, like the chaos she's pointing to on the trail, will help break through. The only problem is these primary voters are energized for Trump. So what happens in the final days of the primary? Yeah, like we said, she'll be back uh, in her hometown of Bamberg this morning as part of this bus tour, barnstorming across the state. Uh, she'll also have two more events today. They're not big rallies, but they're getting folks out, getting people motivated to go vote because we are early voting right now. So she's really trying to get folks to get to the polls early and bring some people with them. And then, of course, we'll see former President Donald Trump back in the state on Wednesday evening for Valentine's Day. Will he bring the former first lady? Speaking of spouses we haven't seen on the trail, well, we'll have to wait and see. But I can tell you there'll be a few thousand supporters out there in North Charleston eager to see him. South Carolina Public Radio's Gavin Jackson. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve.
This is NPR News. Thanks for being with us this morning on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, we remember Bob Edwards, who hosted NPR's Morning Edition for its first 24 and a half years and helped shape the sound of the network. It's 10 minutes before 8. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. A $95 billion aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan passed the Senate today, but the measure faces an uncertain fate in the House. A powerful winter storm is moving across the Northeast this morning, bringing heavy snow and rain to the region. And voters in New York head to the polls for a special election today to replace former Republican Congressman George Santos. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90. WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate. Next weekend at Symphony Hall, visit HandelandHaydn.org. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com. We will get some snow today, although not as much as expected. It looks like it'll start later this morning, continue for much of the day, 3 to 7 inches in greater Boston, higher accumulations south of the city and on Cape Cod. The snow should taper off by tonight when we'll see partly cloudy skies and temperatures in the 20s. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Hollywood is creative and also wasteful. For example, set designers create the backdrops for TV shows and movies and then throw it all out. Thousands of tons of materials end up in dumps each year. Some in the industry want a more sustainable approach. NPR's Chloe Veldman reports. For decades, it was standard practice in Hollywood for art departments to build sets for movies and TV shows from scratch and then break them down and haul the pieces off to the landfill at wrap time. For example, there was the 1988 high school comedy Johnny Be Good. The long-running TV drama Bones. Grab your skull and let's bamboos. The political action thriller Olympus Has Fallen as recently as 2013. Just open the gates of hell. These are just a few of the projects veteran art director Karen Stewart worked on where she says this happened. The dumpsters just line up at the end of the show and there's no talking about it because it's time to get off the soundstage. Stewart is part of a group of like-minded Art Directors Guild members who've been pushing for more sustainable practices for years. She says it was hard at first to get much traction. We're all about not wasting time and hurry up and get it done and time is money. But Stewart says things are becoming easier as the industry is gradually coming to grips with its impact on human-caused climate change. It's getting better and to find a true circular solution, a true zero-waste idea, is what we're working toward. The average production in 2022 created about 240 tonnes of waste. That's according to Earth Angel, an agency that works with productions to reduce their environmental footprint. They estimated half of this waste came from sets. One way to reduce this is to reuse old sets rather than always building new ones. 
Beechwood Services, owned by Sony, rents out sets and props for reuse that were originally built for its own productions. Outside Beechwood's facility, north of Los Angeles, Francisco Escobedo works with fellow crew members to load a sink and cabinets onto a truck. It's basically a set from our kitchen, and this is going to a stage somewhere. For use in the popular sitcom That 90s Show. Uh, we're going to put some line over here and uh, strap it down. The warehouse is packed with scenic gems, like the chopper from the 2001 war movie Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down! Black Hawk Down! So it can be a bit dusty. Yes, it's been here for a while, <laughs> but we do rent it out to other production companies that need it. Crew member Mike Mancia says that chopper has been used for Terminator 4, Suicide Squad and the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> among other movies and TV shows. And when those sets get too old to rent out to productions, they often wind up at places like EcoSet. EcoSet is in Los Angeles. Productions pay for the company to haul away their unwanted sets, props and construction materials. Instead of going to landfills, those treasures are then donated to whoever wants them, like Oyster Liao. The film student is pushing a metal shopping cart around the aisles of EcoSet's warehouse. It's piled so high with pots of paint she can barely see over it. She's also on the hunt for plastic tarps. I think it will be very interesting when lights penetrate through. For use in her class movie production, it's a psychological thriller set in a half-built auditorium. I think this place is very friendly for students who don't have so much fund and support. And uh, I like that we don't have to waste so much. But these solutions to Hollywood's chronic waste problem only go so far. Ecoset's owners don't know what happens to all of the free stuff the business gives out, whether it's recycled again or trashed. Also, many warehouses around the region that used to keep old sets and props in circulation, like Sony's Beechwood Services, have downsized or shuttered in the past couple of years owing to rising real estate costs. I don't think anyone in our industry would shy away from really hard challenges or else we wouldn't be in our industry, but I do think it's tricky. <laughs> That's Jonathan Wong. He produced the Oscar-winning movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He's also a champion of sustainable practices on film sets. He says despite people's best intentions, a lot of stuff still gets thrown out in the rush to meet hectic production deadlines, including on his own sets. I think it's important to just acknowledge that we're all figuring it out. We're trying to do it better. Wong says producers should plan for reducing their environmental impact in the same way that they dealt with the COVID pandemic in recent years, when they allocated 4 or 5% of their budget to cover things like health and safety officers and testing. We adapted to the emergency that was needed on set. And we are currently in an emergency with burning through resources faster than we renew them. So Wang says producers need to make similar room in their budgets for innovation towards sustainability. That way, he says, Hollywood will get closer to zero waste. Chloe Veltman, NPR News, Los Angeles. Steve, do you ever want to go up to your boss and just scream in their face, maybe push them? Layla, are you upset about something? <laughs> No, it doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> right. And we really like our boss, actually. Of course, yeah. But this did happen at the Super Bowl. Yes, after the Kansas City Chiefs fumbled in the second quarter. Yeah, so tight end Travis Kelsey rushed over to head coach Andy Reid, yelled in his face, bumped him with his chest, and made him lose his balance for a second. Both men brushed it off afterwards. Here's Kelsey explaining it on ESPN. I'm going to keep it between us unless my mic up tells the world, but uh, I was just telling him how much I love him. <laughs> In a press conference, Coach Reed said Kelsey makes him feel young. 
He caught me off balance. I wasn't watching. He, cheap shot, but that's all right. He did good. <laughs> um, he was really coming over. Just go, just put me in. I'll score. I'll score. You know. So that's really what it was. Well, I love that. I mean, it's not the first time. So I listen. I appreciate it. He wanted to play. Jesse Washington is a senior writer for ESPN's Anscape. To run up on your coach and get all in his space and knock him off balance and then scream at him, that was highly unusual. But Washington says this player and this coach go back more than a decade. I think the context was two guys who are really passionate. They understand each other. They love each other. They're not afraid to say they love each other. And so it just came out in the heat of the moment. Okay, I guess that's one way to show love. And at that moment in the game, things weren't going well. He probably should have got a penalty. That's what my wife said. I would call it intentional chest to the coach, 15 yards and a loss of down. But it's also understandable. I mean, he's got one catch for one yard. He's not playing well. His team's not playing well. They're about to lose the Super Bowl, and he wants to help them win. He wants the ball. So in that respect, I think even though it was a bad mistake, we can all understand why he did it. He's saying, put me in, coach, and probably got a Taylor Swift allowance. And the Chiefs did go on to win their third Super Bowl in five years. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic. ArtsEmerson.org. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After an all-night session, the Senate has passed a $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. It's Tuesday, February 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, a new effort to try to work out a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Also, voters in Indonesia head to the polls for a presidential election that's focusing on issues of deforestation and coal use. Indonesia is led only by China in newly operating coal power capacity. Plus, we remember NPR host Bob Edwards, who helped shape the sound of the network for decades. I swear I knew what I was going to do when I was three or four years old. I wanted to be the voice in the box. Heavy wet snow expected today. Strong winds about three inches expected in Boston. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Senate has passed a foreign aid package that offers financial support to Israel, Ukraine, and some Pacific nations. The vote was 70 to 29. A group of Republican senators filibustered the bill all night, trying to slow it down. They're opposed to the aid package. Even though it has passed the Senate this morning, House Republicans have warned they are likely to torpedo the foreign aid bill. Voters in some New York City suburbs are heading to the polls today. They're deciding who should replace expelled Congressman George Santos. From member station WSHU, Desiree Diorio has more. The tight race is a toss-up between Republican Mozzie Pillip and Democrat Tom Swazi in the district just east of New York City. 
Swazi is running for his old job. He represented the district for six years as a moderate Democrat. Pillip started her political career just a few years ago when she was elected to the local legislature. The seat is open because the House voted last year to expel George Santos over ethical and campaign finance violations. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. Voters in New York could have a hard time getting to the polls today. There's a significant winter storm that could drop several inches of snow. The storm warnings range from West Virginia to Massachusetts. President Biden says the U.S. is continuing to discuss a potential deal between Israel and Hamas. This could lead to a six-week pause in fighting in Gaza. Biden says the discussions also include proposed increased aid to Palestinian civilians and the release of hostages held by Hamas. The key element of the deals are on the table. There are gaps that remain, but I've encouraged Israeli leaders to keep working to achieve the deal. The United States will do everything possible to make it happen. Biden spoke during a White House visit by Jordan's King Abdullah. Biden also emphasized that Israel should not proceed with a military operation in the southern city of Rafah without a, quote, credible plan to protect Palestinian civilians. More than a million Palestinians are crammed into Rafah for safety against Israeli strikes. The United Kingdom is imposing sanctions against four Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank. That falls a, rather follows a similar move by the United States. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The UK's Foreign Office said it was imposing an asset freeze and entry ban against four settlers accused of attacking Palestinian shepherding communities or families picnicking in the West Bank. The UK announcement said Israel had not followed through on commitments to stop settler violence. One of the sanctioned settlers called the move anti-Semitic. His brother was killed in action as a soldier in Gaza. Just last week, the U.S. imposed similar sanctions against four Israeli settlers, including one the U.K. has now sanctioned. Some saw their Israeli bank accounts closed as a result. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Greater Boston will miss the brunt of today's winter storm, but heavy snow is expected today. The latest forecast shows southeastern Massachusetts and the Cape will get the most snow. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the storm has moved south of Boston. A big shift in the storm track means less snow anticipated across the region. It will fill in this morning, come down steadily through the afternoon. The worst conditions anticipated between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m., a bit longer on Cape Cod. The snow will end in Worcester around 3, Boston just after 4 p.m., and Cape Cod around 7. Expected snow around 3 inches in the city, less north of town an inch or two. With barely anyone should cross the border into New Hampshire, the south shore ramps up 4 to 6 inches, with 6 to 8 inches on Cape Cod, the rare jackpot this time around. The wind will gust to 40 miles per hour at the coast, some gusts to 55 on Cape Cod with isolated damage and outages and widespread minor coastal flooding. Many schools across the state are closed today because of the storm. Newton schools, however, are open because city officials delayed canceling classes. At Logan Airport, more than 200 flights are canceled this morning, and most regional Amtrak service between Boston and New York remains canceled today. A winter storm emergency remains posted for Boston today. That means no street parking on major roads and main arteries. Boston residents do have access to 
to some parking garages for free or at a discounted rate. In Malden, the city lifted its snow emergency at about 6.30 this morning because of the downgraded snowfall totals from this storm. In Quincy, they're bracing for potential coastal flooding. Quincy Mayor Thomas Koch says the city is preparing. It's a major snow event, but we're also very concerned about the coastal flooding and surge that's coming with it. And uh, we're planning for that as well. For example, today we check all our tide gates and those that we manually close before the storm will be closing. And utility companies say local crews are bracing for potential outages. The time is seven minutes past eight. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Crock whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. Northeastern University men's hockey team are men's beanpot champions yet again. The team defeated Boston University in overtime last night. The final score was 4-3. to three. The Bruins take on Tampa Bay tonight. Celtics are looking for a win in Brooklyn in their game against the Nets. And snow is expected today. Sometimes heavy, strong winds, possible coastal flooding, about 3 to 7 inches in greater Boston, higher accumulations south of the city, less snow expected north of Boston. The heaviest snow should be between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. today. After that, it should taper off through most of the state by early evening. After that, it'll be partly cloudy, temperatures in the 20s tonight, and sunny tomorrow with highs around 30 degrees. 34 degrees right now in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. President Joe Biden's age, he's 81, has become a presidential campaign issue that he and his re-election team are having a hard time shaking off, even as his very likely GOP opponent, former President Donald Trump, is almost the same age. He turned 78 in June. So... Is chronological age any measure of competence for the job? To discuss this, I'm joined by presidential scholar Alexis Koh. She's a fellow at the New America Foundation. Alexis, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So in this election, we're seeing the oldest two frontrunners by far in the history of the presidency. And for Biden, it's really become a campaign issue and a point of attack from Republicans. So I want to ask you, should the age of a president matter? I think that age should matter less than the physical, mental, and emotional health of a president. History tells us that no one comes out of the White House in better shape than they entered, mm. no matter what age they are. So we have um, in the past, in our in modern history, JFK. He was plagued by poor health his entire life. Yet that's spoken of like a wonder because it didn't, in fact, derail his presidency. Consider, however, on the flip side, what becomes very obvious is that in the age of television, in a town that's bad at keeping secrets, true dementia um, would be very obvious. Um, 1984, 
Ronald Reagan, presidential debate. He makes a joke of it. He says, you know, he's older at the time. He's, he's, um, I believe, 73. He says, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And just like um, there's, a, there's less of an age difference between Biden and Trump than there was between Reagan and Mondale. But mm. right in front of viewers after he said that, Reagan did mangle facts during the debate, and and yet he went on to achieve something Trump has yet to do in two presidential elections. He won by a landslide. Hmm. Now, is the conversation we're having right now, you and I are having, are we just having an ageist conversation? I mean, the talk of age limits, for example, is something that Senator Bernie Sanders says is just ageism. I think it is, and I think that we're not having the right conversation. Mm. I think that um, what's really important here is is to discuss, if we're going to, why limits exist. Mm. So we don't have an upper limit, but we have a lower limit, and it's good to consider why. And to do that, we have to look back at the 1787 Constitutional Convention. But I promise it's a new point we're making here. George Mason, 62 at the time, was the one who introduced an age requirement of 35. And he did so for two reasons that really aren't relevant anymore. Hmm. Congress was a good school for young men, which is a great idea, but one that didn't take because it wasn't codified. We have Grant, Hoover, Eisenhower, and of course Trump. They spent no time in Congress before ascending to the highest office. Right. And George Mason, based his opinion on his younger self. That is one person, but here's the kicker. Mason, the progenitor of the age requirement, disagreed with other parts of the Constitution. For example, he wanted to end slavery. So he didn't even sign it. And yet this still exists. So are you saying there should be no age limits at all, younger or older? I mean, because a majority of Americans, according to a Pew survey, think there actually should be maximum age limits. I think if we're going to have age limits, we should have wanted at we should have them at both ends mm. or we should have no age limits but it is something that we should be discussing um in a more balanced way you know it's 2024 major advances in medicine technology so people who have access to that kind of care are living longer and healthier lives so is this something that we're just going to see more of older people running for the highest office in the country it's possible i mean Published reports have told us that Biden is healthy for his age, so it does continually feel like a straw man or butter emails moment. Presidential scholar Alexis Coe is author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington and the forthcoming biography of President John F. Kennedy in his youth, Young Jack. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Israel is approaching a choice. It's negotiating toward a ceasefire in its war with Hamas in Gaza. It is also preparing to extend its ground invasion into the very last city in Gaza. President Biden is hoping for option one, the ceasefire. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. Israel's prime minister, though, is promising to invade Rafah, the border city that's a last refuge for many, many Palestinians. And it's raising concern among Israel's neighbors that Palestinians will be forced out of Gaza, which has prompted warnings of dramatic consequences. And Paris Greg Myrie joins us from Tel Aviv. Hey there, Greg. Hi, Steve. Okay, so there are these ceasefire talks in Cairo. What are you watching for? 
Well, these discussions are expected to focus on a ceasefire of up to six weeks or so, as well as another exchange of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners. Now, Hamas wants this to be stage one of a longer ceasefire, one that would lead to an end of the war and an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza. Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected these Hamas demands, but Israel is willing to negotiate because it badly wants to free the more than 130 hostages still held by Hamas. And just a note of caution, a deal at this stage would probably be an interim ceasefire, not an end to the war. Nonetheless, more of a ceasefire than exists now. So who's at the table? Yeah, the key point here is Hamas is not expected to be at the table today in Cairo. Hamas does talk to Egypt. It had a delegation there recently, but it doesn't look like it's going to be there today. Hmm. And it, it points to how complicated these ceasefire negotiations are because Israel and Hamas don't talk to each other. So today in Cairo, Israel, the U.S., the Egyptians, and Qatar will try to come up with a plan, and then it would have to be sent to Hamas for its review. And the other interesting note here is that the talks are being carried out by intelligence chiefs. CIA Director Bill Burns is expected to be present, along with the head of uh, the Israeli intelligence agency, Mossad, and the head of Egyptian intelligence. Wow, that's really interesting. You mentioned all the countries involved. Let me bring in one more. Jordan, whose king, Abdullah, was in Washington speaking with President Biden. Yeah, he made a, a very clear call for Israel not to launch a ground offensive in Rafah, as we've mentioned here. Rafah is the town at the southern end of Gaza. It's become this massive, sprawling tent city with displaced Palestinians. Here's King Abdullah. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. So he's summarizing a position of many Arab and Western leaders. And in fact, Egypt has even threatened to suspend its peace treaty with Israel if it goes into Rafah. Greg, on that last point, you're talking there about the Camp David Accords, the very first peace agreement between Israel and an Arab nation way back in the 70s. And the Egyptians are saying we may suspend this. What makes the Egyptians so concerned? Well, the Egyptians may be doing a little posturing here, but they've often kept their border closed. They're very fearful of Gaza's turmoil spilling over a big flood of refugees into Egypt. Also, they don't like Hamas. They're, they, they're not big fans of Hamas either. So that's why these talks are so critical. If they reach a ceasefire, it could prevent this heavy fighting in Rafah and perhaps ease the humanitarian crisis a bit. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Sure thing, Steve. We're also following this news, which relates to the war. After debating and voting all night, the Senate has passed a bipartisan measure that includes $95 billion of aid for Israel, as well as for Ukraine and Taiwan. It goes now to the House of Representatives, where its prospects are uncertain. Indonesia, the world's third biggest democracy, is heading to the polls tomorrow. This presidential election has potentially big stakes for the climate, as NPR's Julia Simon reports. In recent years, the biggest country in Southeast Asia has been heading in the wrong direction when it comes to planet heating pollution. The reason, in large part, comes down to... Nickel, one of Indonesia's prized resources. This is Putra Adiguna, director of the Energy Shift Institute, Indonesia is the world's biggest nickel producer, 
a key metal for making steel and more and more solar panels and electric vehicle batteries. The problem is Indonesia is powering much of its growing nickel processing industry with new coal plants. That's at a time when most of the world is moving away from coal, says Lucy Hummer of Global Energy Monitor. Indonesia is led only by China in newly operating coal power capacity in 2023. Experts worry one presidential candidate in particular could continue this upward trend of new coal. His name is Prabowo Subianto. The current minister of defense and frontrunner has a dark past. He's the former head of special forces connected to numerous alleged human rights abuses. He owns a coal and energy business. Prabowo wants to increase the coal-powered nickel industry, says Adiguna. The message is quite clear that Prabowo will be pushing hard to continue the nickel processing. Adiguna notes the other candidates, particularly Anis Baswedan, have been more outspoken on the need to improve the nickel industry's environmental footprint. It isn't just coal plants that's a climate concern when it comes to Prabowo's policy proposals. Prabowo's campaigning on a project to build a lot more farms for food security, but this program has driven deforestation, says Fabi Tumiwa, executive director of the Institute for Essential Services Reform. We know it's quite problematic in Indonesia. We understand that it caused some deforestation in central Kalimantan and Papua. And Prabowo is focusing on bioenergy, using plants to make fuels. But planting lots of crops like palm oil for bioenergy can also drive deforestation. New surveys find young Indonesians care a lot about climate change. Experts worry none of the candidates are putting forward enough policy solutions necessary to meet the country's climate targets. Julia Simon, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with us on WBUR this morning. In about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we're going to have a report on the special election in New York today for the congressional seat last held by Republican George Santos. It's 20 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. In the special election to replace disgraced New York Republican Congressman George Santos, the Democratic candidate admits his party's brand isn't too good right now. We've been losing everything, local races, state races, the federal race. I'm Juana Summers. We hear from voters ahead of that election on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. mix of rain and snow in the forecast in greater Boston today, changing to all snow later on this afternoon. Some strong winds today, coastal flooding, about three to seven inches of snow expected in areas of greater Boston, closer to three in Boston, higher accumulations south of the city and less snow north of Boston. The snow should taper off by early evening. Then we'll see partly cloudy skies. Temperature is going down into the 20s tonight and sunshine tomorrow with highs near 30 degrees. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. 
From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep, and these are the voices of everyone who ever hosted this program across 45 years. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Barbara Hochter. I'm Renee Montaigne. I'm David Green. I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Noelle King. Of all the voices, one lasted longer than any other. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Bob Edwards. The Bob Edwards hosted Morning Edition for almost a quarter of a century, from the Iran hostage crisis in 1979 to an attack on America in 2001. To give you breaking news from New York City, where planes, two planes, have hit both towers of the World Trade Center in Lower Bob Manhattan. has died of cancer at 76. Today, we note his longevity, a career that lasted most of his life. I swear, I knew what I was going to do when I was three or four years old. I wanted to be the voice in the box. The box, he said in a memoir, was his parents' handsome mahogany zenith radio in a cabinet. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over London. Like the radios Americans used to listen to Edward R. Murrow reporting on World War II. You'll hear two explosions. Just there they are. Edwards was born in Kentucky just after the war. He developed a lifelong fascination with Murrow, and when he grew up, he did get into the box, broadcasting for an easy listening music station. My name is Bob Edwards, thanking you very much for all the kindnesses that you've given me over the year. I'll be leaving now, joining uh, the Army, I presume. He served with U.S. forces in Korea. Later, he was hired by a new company, NPR. And he was on the air from Washington on August 8, 1974, the day President Richard Nixon announced his resignation. And also the people who have been with him today described him as being incredibly serene. And certainly he looked that way to, uh, to this reporter on television. He became co-host of NPR's afternoon news program. From National Public Radio in Washington, this is Bob Edwards. And I'm Susan Stamberg, with All Things Considered. His colleague there was one of NPR's defining talents, and they sometimes clashed. In his memoir, Edwards confessed that he was jealous of Susan Stamberg's star power, though she says they grew to appreciate one another. Bob and I had our differences. I, of course, was always right. But, <laughs> you know, those were formative years for the two of us. And, you know, you, you were lucky to have someone who was there when you were. Edwards wrote that the experience helped him to mature and prepared him to become the solo host of Morning Edition. As he was leaving All Things Considered, I said to him, you realize, don't you, the only thing people are gonna to wanna to talk to you about in the future is what time you have to get up in the morning. Bob usually woke at one o'clock. He saved that show. He and his producer, Jane Kernis, they really Gave it roots, gave it a purpose, gave it a shape. Looking back on it, Edwards said the news helped. The program debuted on November 5th, 1979. On November 4th, 1979, militant students took over the American embassy in Tehran, and it was the lead story in everybody's news for the next 15 months. 
Edwards was still on the air when the American hostages were released on the same day that a new president took the oath of office. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I... Presidents came and went while Edwards stayed. Soon after the September 11 attacks, he introduced a reporter covering the war in Afghanistan. Also entering Kunduz today was NPR's Steve Inskeep. Describe the scene there, Steve. Bob, I drove in along the main street, the main highway that leads from Talakot. The job called on Bob Edwards to cover everything, and his passion came out when he talked with musicians, especially musicians doing what Bob did, enduring year after year. He spoke in 1999 with Jimmy Buffett. You know, people say, how the hell can you play Margaritaville for the 257,000th time? And it's because I watched the crowd, and, it, you know, it's their song. It's not mine. I'm just singing it. It's background music to their lives, and that's the way I look at it. Susan Stamberg says Edwards became the background to many people's lives, in their cars, in their kitchens, even in their bedrooms and bathrooms. Because you come at a most intimate moment, and you're bringing them into the world, and that voice was so reassuring. Much of the program was live, which meant people heard him when everything went right and when everything went wrong. Commentator Red Barber joins us now from uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Red? Red was not joining us from Tallahassee, Florida. So, what does Bob do when Red doesn't uh, join us from Tallahassee, Florida? Bob picks up some sports copy and moves on to um, find an interesting story to read. Or, as he said, when another story went wrong, I'm going into the aluminum siding business tomorrow. He never did that. I thought I was going to die at NPR. You know, I was just going to do that the rest of my working life or retire from there, maybe. But he sometimes battled management, and in 2004, NPR told him it was time for a change. This program is the last I shall host. I have been reassigned as a senior correspondent. His calm voice on the radio belied the chaos in much of the media. Tens of thousands of listeners wrote in protest. Fans shared his unhappiness that he was dismissed just short of 25 years. He went on to satellite radio. Hello and welcome to the Bob Edwards Show for Tuesday, November 20th. In a memoir, he criticized many of his old colleagues, yet also wrote that his new job had led to the happiest work of his life. Ten years later, when Morning Edition planned to celebrate its 35th anniversary, Bob was long gone from NPR, but his old colleague Susan Stamberg instructed him to show up. I called him up and I said, get dressed and come down here. Come now. There's a party and it's a celebration and you need to be here. He met the younger staff of a program that has become a lasting part of American life. You know, my goal was to follow Merle and Cronkite to the Tiffany Network, you know, at CBS. And I landed at NPR, and NPR became, in my mind, the, uh, the Tiffany Network. So I was very lucky. And when I learned that Bob Edwards was in his final days, I recalled his final words as a host on NPR News, which were characteristically concise and focused on someone else. Many thanks to the hundreds who have worked with me on 30 years of NPR programs and have done their best to make me sound like I know what I'm talking about. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Bob Edwards. This is NPR News. 
Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, three to seven inches of snow expected in greater Boston. Higher accumulation south of Boston, only about three inches in the city. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes joins us to tell us about the changing nature of today's storm. It's 830. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. After months of difficult negotiations, the Senate this morning passed a $95 billion foreign aid package to support allies. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke on the Senate floor after the vote. With this bill, the Senate keeps its word to Ukrainians in desperate need of supplies and ammunition, to innocent Palestinian civilians in need of relief, to Israelis in need of support, and to U.S. service members on patrol in the Indo-Pacific, the Red Sea. The bill does not include changes to U.S. border policy, and House Republicans have warned they won't support it. Reaction continues to former President Trump's recent comments, saying if elected, he would encourage Russia to do whatever they want to NATO allies not spending enough on defense. Finland is new to NATO and shares a border with Russia. The country's Minister for European Affairs, Anders Anlokreutz, spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. You also can say that all NATO members can count on Finland being a reliable partner. We take agreement seriously and Finland naturally expects all other member countries to do the same. He added that many NATO partners do need to step up defense spending. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Although snowfall estimates are far less than expected from today's winter storm, there could be some tough driving conditions across the state later today. Heavy snow is expected to begin later this morning in greater Boston and stay throughout the state until early afternoon. South of Boston and the Cape will get the most snow. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says roads south of Boston, therefore, will be most affected. So the problem spots that we're seeing now and into the next hour, we expect to be in the southern part of the state, uh, south of the Turnpike in particular, and over on the South Shore area. Those are the areas that we're seeing the heaviest bands come in. Uh, there are going to be some north north of that area as well. Gulliver says drivers should take extra precautions during the peak precipitation in the middle of the day today. The Healy administration is laying out plans for transportation funding in the next fiscal year. Governor Healy's proposal includes funding increases for the MBTA's daily operations, deferred maintenance, and equity initiatives. Those initiatives include a 50 percent reduction in fares for some low-income riders. T- General Manager Phil Ang says the agency's working to reverse years of funding shortages. The funding that the governor is proposing for the next fiscal year will allow us to continue to improve how we deliver for the public we serve 
and how we restore public trust in our ability to deliver. We have not seen this level of support in over a decade. Healy's budget proposal did not include funding for fare-free rides. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is using pandemic relief money to make three bus routes free for two more years. The family suing Harvard University for allegedly mishandling the remains of their loved ones say they will appeal a judge's dismissal of their lawsuit. The family's filed suit after the manager at the school's morgue was arrested on charges of stealing and selling body parts. Harvard's lawyers say they were not aware of the alleged crimes and they claim that the school is immune from liability. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins are back home to skate with Tampa Bay tonight. Celtics take on the Nets in Brooklyn tonight. And Northeastern University men's hockey team celebrating their second straight year as Beanpot champions. The team beat Boston University 4-3 to in overtime last night. Snow should begin a little bit later this morning and stay with us through much of the afternoon. About three inches expected in Boston. Higher accumulations south of the city. Coastal flooding is possible today as well. Snow should taper off by early evening. After that, it'll be partly cloudy with lows in the 20s and sunshine tomorrow. Highs around 30 degrees. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has canceled a planned trip to Europe where he expected to meet with other leaders about the war in Ukraine. Austin will attend by video link instead because he remains in the hospital. The treatment for a bladder issue follows Austin's much debated trip to the hospital for prostate cancer treatment that he disclosed to almost nobody. So what's he trying to accomplish with the trip that he's not going to take? Nancy Youssef covers national security for The Wall Street Journal and joins us. Good morning. Good morning. How's the secretary doing? We're told he's doing better, that he had surgery yesterday for what the Pentagon described as an emergent bladder issue, and that he is expected to make a recovery and resume normal duties this week. So that's the official statement. Having said that, the secretary is unable to travel to Europe this week, as you mentioned, for the Ukraine contact group. So while they're saying he is ready to resume normal duties, it's clear that there's, at least for now, some limitations on that. I'm now curious, having gotten in trouble for not disclosing enough about his health, is he now telling you every little detail about the bladder? Well, we don't know what the exact issue is. We don't know what the surgery was that required his hospitalization on Sunday. And we don't know the details of his prognosis. But it is better than what it was earlier this year at the start of the year when the secretary was hospitalized and did not disclose it to anyone, including the president of the United States, for four days. And so it's better in terms of transparency than what we got earlier this year. But I don't know if it's as fully transparent 
such that the American public has a, a detailed assessment of his prognosis, which is important because obviously he's in charge of the largest government agency, an $850 billion defense yeah. budget, and he's sixth in line uh, in succession. Well, let's talk about the substance of this meeting that he will attend virtually, we are told. What's on the table? The Ukraine contact group is a meeting of 50 nations, and they hold this meeting monthly to determine how to get military aid to Ukraine amongst its allies. This comes at a time when the war is stalled for quite a bit. We've heard from Ukraine that they are really struggling in terms of weapons and munitions to the point that they're really being very careful in terms of even using basic weapons and holding on to them because they're on such short supply. And so the intent was to come up with some sort of longer term planning and funding for Ukraine to get it its weapons it needs. I think the hope was that this meeting would get other allies to step up and provide some of that aid as the U.S. Um, holds this ongoing debate about aid to Ukraine. Is it a little awkward that the United States wants to lead the coalition that is supporting Ukraine and the United States is needing to ask other people to do the work that the United States doesn't seem to be in a position to do right now? It is because throughout this war, the United States has been the leader in terms of the amount of aid that is provided and building up the alliance. When this started, it was not a 50-nation alliance. It became so because of the U.S. support. And actually, this group itself was founded by the defense secretary, and he really sort of personified the U.S. role in sort of shoring up aid to Ukraine and support across the alliance. Nancy Youssef of The Wall Street Journal, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today is the final day to cast votes for a consequential special election in New York's 3rd Congressional District. That seat was last held by Republican George Santos, a controversial figure, to say the least, who kind of lied about everything. He was expelled from the House last year after being indicted on 23 federal counts relating to misusing campaign funds. He's pleaded not guilty to those charges. Bridget Bergen of the member station WNYC is covering the race, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So an important race could help decide who controls the House. The Democrats want to flip it, but the GOP candidate has a razor-thin majority right now. Who did the Republicans tap to run? So the party leaders chose Mozzie Pillip. She's currently in her second term with the Nassau County Legislature as a Republican. I should note she's actually a registered Democrat. Um, A big part of her campaign centers on her identity. She's an Orthodox Jew, mother of seven, born in Ethiopia, fled to Israel to avoid religious persecution, and then immigrated to the United States several years ago. And with the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, she's really made support for Israel central to her campaign. This is her speaking at a campaign campaign event in the district. I lived in Israel. I served in the Israeli army. I will be a voice. And I know with that clear voice, I will be able to do a better job than Tom Swazi when it comes to Israel. Now, she mentions the Democrat there, Tom Swazi. I should note there's really no daylight between them on this issue. Tom Swazi fully supports Israel. He went there in December, even appeared with Mazi at an event um, with the parents of an Israeli hostage taken on October 7th during this campaign. Okay, so an, an issue they actually agree on. Tell us about Tom Swazi. Why are Democrats banking on him? So Swazi actually used to represent this district in Congress for three terms before Santos. He opted not to run in 2022 and instead ran unsuccessfully for New York governor. He's been around politics for a really long time, about three decades. And his pitch to voters is that his experience 
will help him. He can work across the aisle to find solutions. And really, he's been campaigning all over the place during this race. And Phillips made really limited limited appearances on the campaign trail. And that's left some voters scratching their heads, especially after Santos, because they say they want to know who they're voting for this time. Okay. So you told us about the two candidates. They seem to agree on Israel. But what are other issues that they're focused on in this race where maybe there is daylight? So national issues have really dominated the campaign, and particularly the ongoing migrant crisis has been a top concern. Pillip blamed Swazi for not doing more to address immigration while he served in Congress. And he says the only way to address the immigration issue is through a bipartisan solution like the one that came out of the U.S. Senate, Senate last week. And he's calling out Republicans for tanking it. How can it be that for a year, You've been saying the border, the border, the border, hair's on fire, the border, terrorists are coming in, fentanyl's coming in, there's problems, it's a problem, and it is a problem. Pillip, like many other Republicans, has said that she opposed that deal uh, not long after President Trump came out against it. And Swazi says being unwilling to work across the aisle is also a major problem. So how much of a nail biter is this going to be? I mean, how does this district usually vote? Layla, this is a swing district. Uh, President Biden won it by eight points in 2020. But in the years since, Republicans have been picking up seats at all levels of government. Mm. They are going to be turning out their voters today. And I should note on top of that, we have a winter storm hitting the region today. (laughs) Schools are remote. Roads are a mess. So if you didn't already vote during early voting, it may not be that easy to get to polls today. So people are going to be watching this race very closely. That's Bridget Bergen from member station WNYC in New York reporting. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR, it's the Marketplace Morning Report, where we'll have a report that pulls back the curtain on parts of the glamorous fashion industry. In business news, the FDA is giving approval to a new device from Marlboro-based Boston Scientific. The device, known as a WaveRider Alpha Spinal Cord Stimulator, treats chronic lower back and leg pain. It's meant to be a safer alternative to opioids. Vincent's Restaurant and Wine Bar in Kendall Square is closing at the end of this month. The restaurant opened in 2020, and the group behind the eatery says it has new plans for the space, but those have not been disclosed. A speedboat that once belonged to former President George H.W. Bush is going up for auction in Maine this week. The 38-foot boat is named the Fidelity Five. The Bush family used it while visiting their summer home in Maine after both Bush and his son, former President George W. Bush, left office. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC.
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A winter weather advisory is posted in Boston as Massachusetts prepares for a storm that will bring snow and possible coastal flooding. Several school districts, including Boston's, are closed today ahead of the storm. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes joins us to talk about the forecast and why we'll likely get less snow than expected. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Deb. So is this storm a bust, at least in Boston for the most part, Danielle? (laughs) Listen, what I will say about this storm, it has been very tricky to forecast. And, you know, yesterday there were some signals that started to show up that the storm was going to pass farther to the south, farther away from New England, um, not be as strong of a low pressure center. So that has had some pretty significant implications in terms of the expected snowfall in the city of Boston. Now, you know, north of town, I'm still expecting a couple of inches, but that's a huge shift compared to the, you know, 8 to 12 and over a foot Mm. that was forecast for some. So, yes, it's been a big shift, but there will still be impacts through the day today travel-wise because of the snow moving in. Okay, so we'll talk about the why the shift in a moment. How much snow should we expect? So I think for for the city, it's probably around three to four inches that we're going to see north and west of Boston, you know, typically a jackpot zone. Mm-hmm. It goes down to two to three and then probably only about one to two northern Massachusetts through the Merrimack Valley and into southern New Hampshire. The jackpot zone, rare, um, but is going to be on Cape Cod, actually. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ramp up south of Boston, you know, I'd say about four to five inches through the South Shore, and then around six when you get to Marshfield Point South. It's probably about six to eight inches on the Cape. And Deb, I still think this storm has some tricks up its sleeve. So I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere on Cape Cod ends up with a foot of snow from this. Wow. What about timeline? What are we looking at? So I'd say within the next couple of hours, it ramps up. And then the height of the storm is still expected to be late morning through the early afternoon. So that's when the conditions will be the worst on the roads, tough travel, and the most snow will accumulate either side of about midday. I think it wraps up in Boston around or just after 4 p.m. and probably more like 6 o'clock on Cape Cod. So what about coastal flooding? Still anticipating widespread minor coastal flooding, Deb, although there are some signs that we may just hit moderate flood stage in a few spots. So that would be a little more of a significant um, flooding event with road closures and perhaps some basement flooding up and down uh, the east coast of Massachusetts through the afternoon high tide today and then likely again tomorrow for the morning high tide too. Mm -hmm. So why was this so tricky? You know, I've read about this European model of forecasting (laughs) that told us that it might not be as bad as we thought it was going to be. So so what, what happened here? There's almost like a split jet stream over us right now. The jet stream is high in the sky. It helps to steer our storms and also kind of acts like a thermostat. So colder on the north side of the jet stream and it helps to steer the storms. Um, I think there's two different things at play. The split jet stream allowed that storm to pass a little farther south and there's a stationary boundary that's in northern New England. It was supposed to be a cold front to kind of help kick this thing and kind of you know interact with this storm and it's not really doing that. So I think that played a role in why this storm is weaker and also passing farther to our south. Mm-hmm. And so it'll taper off today. Will this snow stick around? What, what happens after this? 
So good question, right? So here's the thing. Tonight, we're going to drop into the 20s. So everything's going to freeze solid. So even, you know, if you only get a couple inches north of Boston, um, you know, you want to get things cleaned up before it freezes solid tonight. And then the rest of the week actually looks pretty, pretty chilly. Um, temperatures should probably only be in the 30s. The sun's back tomorrow, um, but we'll be in the mid to upper 30s. So there'll be a little bit of melting that goes on. Um, each day, obviously, with highs, you know, 35 to 40 degrees. Um, but south of town, where the highest totals are, you know, it's going to be a wet pasty snow, too, by the way, that may cause some isolated outages or damage for the Cape um, and islands, especially. Okay, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes will be checking in with you throughout the day today. Thanks so much. Sounds good, Deb. Thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. It's 10 minutes before 9. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this morning. After a late night session, the U.S. Senate has approved a $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan after months of negotiations. CIA Director William Burns is in Egypt today to push for a hostage release deal between Israel and Hamas. Also, the Egypt talks are working on a new effort toward a ceasefire. And classes at Boston Public Schools canceled this morning as a winter storm begins to move through the region. About three inches of snow now expected in Boston with higher accumulations south of the city and on the Cape. Stay up to date on all the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Center for the Humanities, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. About three inches of snow expected in Boston today should taper off tonight when it'll become partly cloudy with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow for Valentine's Day. Highs around 30 degrees and sunshine on Thursday with temperatures near 40. 34 degrees right now in Boston. p.m. Las Vegas time last Sunday, the moment the country effectively unified. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. With a fleet of small ships, Viking offers travel experiences for the thinking person. Discover more at Viking.com. And by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, there's news. Inflation in January did not slow as much as people wanted, with prices up three-tenths of 
tenths versus two tenths percent forecast. Year over year, prices are up 3.1 percent. Central bankers like two percent. Excluding food and fuel, the core prices were also running warm. Stock index futures are tanking, with S&P futures now down 1.2 percent, down 1.6 percent for the Nasdaq. Some drivers for Uber and Lyft are planning to strike tomorrow, Valentine's Day. Drivers are expected to strike for two hours between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. The idea is to not accept rides to and from 10 airports, including some of the nation's busiest, Chicago's O'Hare, Miami International, and Newark in the New York City area. The drivers say the commissions that rideshare companies take are too big. Among other things, they want commissions capped at 10%. Also, a minimum wage guarantee, health care benefits, and an independent appeals process for drivers who are booted off platforms. Just last week, in a bid to lure more drivers, Lyft said it would guarantee that drivers keep 70% of what customers pay. That's after external fees, such as local taxes, are deducted. At the same time, Lyft and Uber are engaged in fierce competition for post-pandemic market share. That competition includes a price war. Lyft has been trying to limit the use of surge pricing, something the company says customers loathe. But drivers complain that their earnings are decreasing. One demand is for minimum pay to match New York City's, nearly $28 an hour. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Predictions were 100 million people would watch the Super Bowl. Now iSpot says it was 126 million, up 11% from a year earlier on CBS TV mainly, but also Univision, Nickelodeon, and Paramount+. Plus. A good game with overtime helped. The Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey pairing didn't hurt, and maybe you felt it Sunday. But at 5.38 Vegas time, going into Usher's show, Halftime, the peak of the peak, and a rare moment of unified experience in our fractured media environment. This makes it the most watched program in U.S. history. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. If someone's late to the meeting, there's no worries. Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant takes live notes and now answers questions like, what were the action items? Learn more at otter.ai. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Econ Extra Credit Now, one documentary a month exploring marketplace themes. This month, it's the 2023 film Invisible Beauty, about activist and iconic fashion model Beth Ann Hardison, who was a driving force in what was called the Diversity Coalition that pressured for change in an earlier generation. Today, a disturbing reminder that change in an industry is an ongoing process. Tatiana Siegel is the executive editor of Film and Media at Variety, where her reporting has explored working conditions in modeling and fashion Welcome. Thank you for having me, David. You've found people who've described some of the contracts that models work under as, I think the word here is suffocating. Suffocating, exploitative, opaque. A lot of models are unable and have no recourse to see the contracts that they've signed. A lot of models, English is not their first language and they're signing contracts that are in English. So yeah, the whole thing is pretty egregious. I guess I'm just naive. I was not prepared to read your accounts of some of the recruitment methods that you've found used by some modeling agencies. Give us a sense. I've heard of modeling agencies recruiting in refugee camps outside of eating disorder clinics. So that is quite eye-opening. To say the least, and shocking. So New York Center 
of this industry, I think it's fair to say, there's proposed legislation not yet enacted. I think it's called the New York Fashion Act and the Fashion Workers Act. Give me a sense of what the initiative is there. Basically, New York has this unique carve out where modeling agencies don't have to operate in the same way that any other employer does in New York. The Model Alliance, which is an advocacy group, has fought for this legislation called the Fashion Workers Act that they were able to get through the Senate last year in New York, but it never got voted on in the Assembly, even though it has bipartisan support. So they have re-updated the language to include AI protections because that's something that played out last year with the SAG-AFTRA strike and is becoming an increasing concern. So they got in this new language and they're ready to reintroduce it. Now, let's stay on the potential and challenges of artificial intelligence for people working in the modeling industry. You've talked to people who remember that their agencies have electronically scanned their bodies. For what purpose, do you think? No one knows. No one can really articulate what is being done with these scans, but it's alarming. We're already seeing the use of AI models. I think Gucci and Levi's have used campaigns that feature AI creations. It's not some science fiction possibility. It's it's happening. I think you wrote about that Levi's campaign. Am I right? They had a computer generated like avatars that look like models. And in some cases, they didn't hire a black model. They constructed one electronically. They touted it. They weren't even hiding behind, you know, that they did this. They were touting this as like, this is a great step in sort of diversifying our modeling campaigns and models that I talk to who are models of color who have been excluded from the industry for decades or treated less than were pretty aghast because, you know, they're willing to work. So you have Levi's creating some model of color that doesn't exist to tout its own diversification efforts. Tatiana Siegel has done reporting extensively on this topic. She's executive editor of film and media at Variety. Ms. Siegel, thank you very much. Thank you again. We have more on New York legislation to beef up protections against discrimination and harassment of models and creatives. Marketplace.org slash EconExtraCredit, where you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter full of econ and money lessons from our movie watching. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Looks like snow is expected to begin later this morning and stay with us for much of the day today. About three inches of snow total in Boston, higher accumulations in southeastern Massachusetts and on the Cape. The Cape could see six to eight inches of snow, about four to six along the south shore. The snow should taper off by early evening. After that, it'll be partly cloudy. Temperatures going down into the 20s and tomorrow sunshine. Highs around 30 degrees. 34 degrees in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.